0: thought leadership from PwC.
1: Today, we're coming to you with a special episode with the CFA Institute to reflect on 20 years of Sarbanes-Oxley and what this legislation has meant for the financial reporting ecosystem. This is PwC's accounting podcast.
0: As we know, that orientation of CEOs saying financial reporting and disclosure is not my job. Sarbanes actually took
2: that on. Corporate governance matters and accountability at the management level is foundational.
1: I'm Heather Horn and thanks so much for joining us today. Our special guest today is Sandy Peters, Head of Financial Reporting Policy and Spokesperson for the CFA Institute. Sandy's joined by Wes Bricker, PwC's Vice Chair and Co-leader of the firm's US Trust Solutions practice. Together, Wes and Sandy will reflect on how financial reporting has evolved over the years since Sarbanes-Oxley was passed into law in 2002. As our listeners know, this law enacted sweeping reforms to financial reporting and introduced new audit requirements for public companies as well as new certifications that their officers were required to provide with each financial statement filing. Sandy provides a helpful perspective on the impact this law through the eyes of investors. Our conversation's insightful and also covers some lessons that can likely be applied to the current state of ESG reporting. There's a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Sandy, Wes, welcome. And thanks so much for joining me for our conversation about socks 20 years later. And I think on the one hand, it's hard to believe it's been 20 years. Um, on the other hand, as I was telling Sandy before we started, my son was actually born on July 30th, 2002, which was the day socks was passed. And so anytime I think there no time has passed, I look at my six foot tall son and realized it truly has been 20 years. Now, obviously I did not realize the day he was born that socks had passed, but when I came back to work, it was all that anyone was talking about. And I do think it's important before we start our conversation to kind of rewind and try to put us into the mindset of people were in, in 2002, because I do think in some ways it was much different than now, but in other ways, so many similarities to now. Mm. So maybe Sandy, I'll start with you. What can you share as you sort of look back and think about some of the key things that were going on um, that led to stocks being passed? You know, it's interesting. I think we all anchor ourselves
2: back to things that were personally going on (laughs) at that time. And I actually last, last fall, the Wall Street Journal started doing an episode series on the Enron collapse. And so I actually had on my Audible... Um, the smartest guys in the room, which I, I had never completely listened to it, but I went last fall and re-listened to it. And it was so particularly fascinating because so much of what they were actually trying, like streaming and SPEs and those things. I mean, I was doing financial guarantee at the time, so I was heavily into SPEs and how they worked and how they didn't work. And, um, you know, my Enron, was formed with the merger of Houston Natural Gas and Northern Natural Gas, which were headquartered in my hometown of Omaha. So we had a lot of friends who moved to Houston, and then lost a lot mm-hmm. of their of their savings, and it was quite you know tragic. and And you had a um, a big um, you know like wow what what happened there, and you see it up close and personal, right? So I think that in a broader way. Um, it was sort of the run up of the late 90s. Were people still trying to keep, um, that going because of the earnings and the, and the multipliers that were going on? Certainly that was the case for Enron. So it was sort of this, you know, the major bust of Enron in late 2001 and then into 2002. And it's really interesting that there was such bipartisan support. I went and looked up what the vote was and it was virtually unanimous for it with, um, I think Sarbanes was a Democrat and Oxley was a Republican. I think if memory serves me correctly. But I think the, the, the general feeling is how could this happen? Right? How could this happen? Because some of the things like WorldCom were such basic, mm-hmm. um, blocking and tackling. And Enron was identified because of a reporter and the looking at the cash flow statement, which I know, Wes, you know, we think is very important. Um, so it's really, it was really uh, just such a big kaboom, um, with things that followed on so quickly and a real question about how this could happen. And it got to some basic blocking and tackling related to accounting and auditing and Mm -hmm. audit committees and the analyst community, which had a lot of conflicts at the time, right? We got brought into that conversation at CFA Institute at that time. So it was just such a drop the mic moment, if you will.
0: I think that's a really important reflection, Sandy, uh, that at the time, you know, I reflect on one of the points in uh, Senate testimony that then Enron CEO. Jeffrey Skilling uh, essentially said, financial reporting is not my area of expertise. That's why I have a top uh, CFO. As we know, that orientation of CEOs saying, financial reporting and disclosure is not my job, Sarbanes-Oxley took that on and, and essentially said, it's the job of all of those officers, CEOs, CFOs. They certify these numbers are important enough for CEO-level responsibility, for board-level oversight. It's everyone's job in order to produce good numbers, because that's the foundation of decision-making that occurs in our markets. One of the other points that that I reflect on, Sandy, is you know I looked, at, I, I looked this up since Sarbanes-Oxley was passed and it's now, Heather, as you said, it's now into its twenties. The Dow Jones uh, Industrial Average is up three x. The S and P is up five x. We've had a, an expansion in our markets. Uh, for every dollar of GDP, we now have a dollar ninety nine of capital, public capital. In two thousand two, we only had a dollar and one penny of public capital for every dollar of GDP. So by many measures, as you look backward over the past 20 years, our markets have expanded. The public markets have expanded. Capital has expanded as just a reflection on uh, the importance of what the law has done to expand confidence in the information that serves as an essential element of investors participating in our markets putting putting their capital dollars um to work in the markets and then companies getting the benefit of that uh, investment and putting it to work as companies operate and grow and compete and and uh, ultimately produce um increase
2: you know what? I, I, I The comment that you made, Wes, with respect to Skilling's testimony gets to the heart of what investors have advocated for, not only in the U.S., but recently in the U.K. and amongst the European Commission, which is the first responsibility is with management, not with the audit committee and not with the auditors. And we believe strongly In the provisions of SOX 302, which was management certifying and saying, we own this, it's our responsibility. And 404, which is management making a statement with respect to internal controls over financial reporting and the attestation. We believe those are the foundational elements of SOX that not just the provisions of the act, which are important, but the behavioral elements that they changed, right? Which is exactly what you're getting to in the comments that Skilling made. And if you look at our recent comment letters to the UK government, Bayes, um, Bryden, Competition and Markets Authority, and our recent consultation to um, the European Commission, um, related to its, uh, foundational re- corporate reporting consultation. I get the exact name of it incorrect, but it talked about the pillars of corporate reporting. Okay. And we believe that this is a foundational pillar and it is auditors can only report what they find. They can't fix it and regulators only find it later. And we don't want the, those are important pillars as well. But we like preventative controls over detective controls. Um, so I think your point about Skilling's comment gets right to the heart of why we care so much about Sarbanes-Oxley. It's they, No one can say that anymore. They own it. Mm-hmm. And it's the resources they're bringing to bear on the financial reporting process
1: that are so fundamentally important um, for investors. Well, and I do think such a fundamental shift for everyone involved in the ecosystem to go from this idea that, you know, as long as the numbers, as long as someone catches it in the end or whatever, the numbers are right. Instead saying, no, no, management has this responsibility to make sure that the numbers are right. And you guys both made the point about the certifications. Maybe a question for both of you, and I have my own perspective. Oftentimes when we have something like a certification or a signature, over time, it loses sort of its oomph, and it becomes routine. I'm just going to sign. Like, oh, it's that piece of paper I need to sign. My sense is that that has not happened here and that, you know, CEOs and CFOs still do view this as an incredibly important responsibility and you wouldn't have that type of skilling testimony today. Is that your perspective as well as you think about your interactions with management? And maybe Wes, you're nodding, so I'll ask you first. Yeah,
0: I think it's a really important point and reminder for everyone who takes on the responsibility whether it's a preparer responsibility or an audit committee responsibility or on the auditor side, the external audit, it's the responsibility that that what we all do in our respective roles matters. And it matters every year. It's not just a checklist process. It matters the judgments, the professional skepticism and the challenge that's built into it. That's what keeps this system alive. And, And I do think that the prepare responsibility for uh, books and records and internal accounting controls or internal controls over financial reporting. Keeping that fresh and relevant is important, but they're not standing alone. They do so under the oversight of the audit committee that's bringing in an outside perspective. One of the one of the strong innovations of the Sarbanes Oxley Act was the independent audit committee. It brings a degree of, of challenge, but then also for the external auditor, also bringing a fresh perspective. Part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was fresh perspective for mandatory rotation of the lead engagement partner, for example. That has helped really keep the, the, the system as a living system that needs to address the changing circumstances and the assumptions that go into reporting, which may change over time. So, Heather, I, I very much appreciate your point. It's the, it's the independent sources of oversight and challenge that keeps the system from being just a checklist orientation.
2: Yeah, I think when you look back and you think about it in the context of how did they get this all done in six months, right? that they really understood that all of these people are agents of investors, right? So management is an agent of the investor, um, audit committees are agents of investors, and auditors are agents of investors and the regulator, right? I mean, investors pay for the PCAOB and the the FASB, right? That assessment comes from the residual equity of the company, so investors um, pay for it. The issue is, um are we getting all the information we need from all of the players, right? But certainly the existence of that responsibility across all of those parties is what keeps the certifications from becoming routine. And everyone saying, well, okay, what about this? And what about that? Because I have accountability too. Here's where my accountability begins and here's where your, um, and ends. And, and similarly for everyone who's a, um, a part of the process. This is why we've highlighted that the existence of Sarbanes Oxley-like provisions in the UK, we were very disappointed that that didn't happen. And we said it very strongly to the European Commission, corporate governance matters and accountability at the management level is foundational. And, you know, in the European Union, um, there is no audit regulator in the same way they're making in the UK ARGA much stronger, or FRC, which will become ARGA much stronger. But the European Commission doesn't have that, right? There's a lot of, we said, pushing on the auditor and all of the pillars of the system need to work because all of these people have a responsibility um, to investors. We're paying everyone, right? And, we, and, we, and we'd like everybody to work on our behalf.
0: <laughs> I really appreciate that point, Sandy. I think it's so well said. And just to underscore it, the system relies on transparency. And, and one of the real innovations in this process was public certifications for management um, an expanded uh, audit committee report from the independent audit committee. And then it took several years, but now in the U.S., an expanded auditor's report. I, I think as we look forward maybe to, to just uh, change our orientation to the future for a, for a second, that core underpinning of transparency about responsibilities, results for the period, I, I think that... That requires continued focus, Contin- continued focus, whether it's the external auditor's report, and continuing to uh, to push for more information, more content, and expansion there. Uh, the independent audit committee uh, report, similar thing, and and then management's disclosures. It's that combination that makes it accessible for investors, who you rightly point out, uh, ultimately bear the cost through the net assets of the corporations that they own.
2: Transparency um, is is absolutely key. I I was I jokingly I I don't know if I've said this to you, but certainly to others from PwC in 2013, we wrote a paper called Investor Perspectives on Disclosures. Um, the subtitle was Transparency, Trust, and Volume. Right. Um, so I grew up in the era of Ronald Reagan. So you know, trust but verify. Right. Um, and and to verify, you need some transparency. So. Certainly, we have advocated since the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley for greater disclosures related to, for example, the expanded audit report, the naming of audit partners. We were not for audit rotation. Um, I personally know how hard it is to become familiar with an audit client having been an audit partner. I don't think that that's necessarily the behavioral change that's needed. Transparency on the engagement um, is certainly something so the investors can decide if that relationship has existed long enough. Um, that's what we, that's what we are. We're about allowing the people who own the company to make the decisions that they think or advocate for the decisions that they think are necessary. Um, you know, we've asked for more for the, from the audit committee. Um, certainly if you look, we spent a lot of time in the last three or four years on the UK and the European Commission trying to sort of move those things to the ideals that we like, but it's actually been really enlightening because contrast is everything in learning, right? And it's really been enlightening about where you think things work and don't work in all of the systems and what are the foundational elements of what they got right in in six months' time. But certainly we want more from the audit committee and we also want um, a little bit more from the auditors as well. So we've we're in the, you know, what does the next 10 years of socks look like? I think what you're going to hear from investors is we need a, a bit more transparency to move audit out of the space of a credence good. Colleen Honigsberg, who's a professor at Stanford, said that at a recent um SEC Investor Advisory Committee that I sit on. And I actually think that you spoke at, Wes, um, and I thought that was perfectly, I I didn't use that term in our discussion of audit quality in Brighton, but it was so apropos to exactly what it is, which is we are left to evaluate a good without the quality of a good, without the ability and information to judge the quality of it. And I think it's very doable. And actually, like some of the language that I'm hearing from the PCAOB, let's move it out of the discussion of audit quality indicators to some of just key performance indicators, right? Like whether you do we have to absolutely agree that these determine audit quality or are they indicators of it, right? So um, there's some there seems like there's some language cha- changing around that, but transparency is at the at the heart of it. And we think, um, you know, personally, the audit profession is so important to investors um, that, um, you know, I think many people view auditors and investors not necessarily as adversaries, not as allies. And I actually think that's a mistake, right? I think that um, investors are ultimately the client, and um, investors want the audit profession to succeed. They want it to work well. They want it to be a profitable business. The process works well. I mean, I was an audit partner. You get what you pay for, right? And it's hard when there's when there's pressure to that degree. And I think it's only more important as we move into more forward-looking and judgmental um, items that... We as investors need to speak about what we want in a positive way, not in a negative way. We are, we are here to help auditors succeed. We need them to succeed. We need the audit committee to succeed. And we need the PCAOB to succeed. And the new ARGA, And whatever the European Commission does.
0: <laughs> we all operate in the context of a broader system. And, and that system it is in everyone's interest. And and so our, our our interests travel in the direct in, in the same direction, high quality information so that investors have confidence as they allocate their, their dollars. And I, I very much appreciate your point, Sandy, that um, as as auditors we address our reports to the board of directors and stockholders. It's both. And importantly, it's both. One one additional piece of that is transparency and and reporting can help raise the acumen about the work we do and the sensible expectations that should be had of us as providers. Just going back to the point about the credence aspects of the audit service, the more transparency we have is a good thing, and then to properly uh, evaluate it requires understanding and expertise and there's a natural conversation that occurs whenever the auditor produces more information and more transparency uh, that, that then the audit committee uh, works to understand, investors work to understand, and then that results in a point of view. It provides feedback to the auditor, and, and you get the, the virtuous circle of, of feedback. You get the feedback loop. I do like the direction of travel toward more information, more transparency, Greater expertise by a wider group of people to understand the elements that go into high-quality reporting, the elements that go into uh, high-quality external audits. How do you judge the quality? How How do you evaluate key performance indicators in the audit?
1: Picking up on a point you made and actually going back, Sandy, to the point you made about the fact there's so many different parties in this ecosystem. And I think, Wes, one of the first projects I ever worked with you on was talking about all of the parties in the financial statement ecosystem and how everyone has a role to play. But Sandy, question for you is, when I look back and reflect, I feel like You know, I have as an auditor for maybe 10 years before Sarbanes-Oxley came out, and I'm not sure there was that recognition of all these different parties in high-quality financial reporting. I'm just curious if your perspective would be, before Sarbanes, you think investors appreciated all the roles everyone had to play, or is that a, a shift that you've seen since then?
2: You know, that's a really interesting question. I wasn't living necessarily... I was a charter holder then, or I just became one back then. Um, I, I certainly think that enhanced the understanding by investors of the duties that all of these people owe to them. It It's probably more firmly placed, um, uh, more crisply defined it, and more crisply define where they look to for particular information. Because, you know, it's funny, I was on a um on a UK um, FRC stakeholders call and someone said, well, when audit committee chairs go out to talk to investors, like they don't, investors don't want to talk with them. And I said, it's because they don't have a lot of information to ask a lot of questions, right? Um, uh, and 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 that's what they really need is to do the analysis um, that you're um, talking about. The really interesting um, part for um, investors is that they need to triangulate the information, right? So when we did, first did surveys of investors on audit issues, so we've been doing financial reporting, and then sort of after the financial crisis, we did a lot in um, on the revisions that were being made to audit reports and those sorts of things. And we we did some surveys and I was fascinated. I didn't think we were going to get very good responses. Right? Like, like, because investors understand economics and analysis and reading the data. Do they don't necessarily understand accounting rules in the same way? And audit's another derivative, right? It's it's further back. Um, but I was really fascinated by some of the responses that we actually got, that people do understand what the audit is about and what it should provide and what they need. Um, not sure, to your original point that that was completely well understood in the, um, Sarbanes, um, or pre-Sarbanes. But I'm still, again, repeating myself that I'm, I'm fascinated that they did that in six months mm-hmm. to get these parties all properly lined up, right? Mm-hmm. That's fascinating, given the system we live in today.
0: <laughs> Let me just pull on, on that point as well. I think the work that's, that's been done over the past, call it two decades, a greater understanding of the system for preparing and and reporting disclosure from management to auditors to those who disseminate, that that has enabled each organization involved to better coordinate on the agendas that need to be in sync in order to drive the proper collaboration across uh, each of those and ultimately get to consensus. One of the approaches for accounting standards, for example, they're generally accepted accounting principles. You see the same terminology in the auditing standards, generally accepted auditing standards. I know and appreciate the PCB sets those, but it's with public input. It's with public dialogue. And ultimately, it's general acceptance so that there's a common understanding about what the information is when investors receive it They have a good understanding of what it represents so that they use it with proper context and it minimizes them the risk of inappropriate reliance on it. It's that better understanding of everyone who's involved in the system that gets us coordination, collaboration, and consensus. I might also add it also helps us look for concentrations, the risk of concentration Maybe it's key talent or expertise or other aspects where, as we look at the system, it requires a broader understanding and opening up of the activities in order to promote the three primary objectives of collaboration, uh, coordination, and consensus building.
1: Agreed. So let me shift a little bit and you know at the time Sarbanes was passed and to your point very quickly and under six months I think, they some of the things that I think they were hoping would be outcomes would be, for example, you know, restatements and that you wouldn't have the next Enron and I, we really haven't had those huge types of frauds that we've seen. But we did see restatements increase soon after Sarbanes, and now we've seen them come back down. And I guess it's a question for either one of you. you know, what is your perspective? Are we going to kind of continue to see this lower level? Do you think there's some, you know, we could expect to see it bump back up? You know, I don't, what would be your view on this, Wes?
0: I think it's right that with more investment, more scrutiny on the financial reporting process, as well as the financial reporting outcomes, that there was a positive benefit of cleaning things up. And, and so when, when you look at the data around restatements, it might be a restatement for a mistake, might be a, a restatement for an intentional error wrongdoing. Those peaked around 2005 to 2006 in terms of the financial statements. And then it's, it's it's come down since then. It's come down generally in terms of lower dollar. So it's come down in terms of uh, fewer intentional errors. It's come down in terms of uh, the pervasiveness across uh, a financial reporting model in, in terms of non-core accounts. It, it, it's also come down in terms of the negative market reaction to restatements. So those are all positive directions. I, I guess... Sort of looking at that and and then broadening out a bit, I, I I do think it's it's a good time to think about the scope of audit. Are we testing the right things? Is it time to to look beyond just the financial statements to other areas? And in in fact, that's that's what we see the SEC proposing as part of uh, their uh, climate risk proposal, for example, assurance um, outside of the financial statements. So I I think that's that experience on the positive benefits on reliability of management accountability, independent audit committee oversight, external audit, that positive effect over time on the quality and confidence in the quality of the data can, in fact, be ported uh, beyond the scope of the financial statements.
1: Well, and I definitely want to come back to that point, Wes, because I do think there's a lot for us to learn from Sarbanes and to think about when we think about ESG reporting. Before we get to that, though, because I think that will take up the rest of our conversation, (laughs) I do have one or two more questions for you, Sandy, and specifically, you know, one of the the impacts, the Sarbanes intended impacts, was to increase investor confidence, and obviously it's a little bit nebulous, but you know, given the, some of the work that you've done and surveys and otherwise, would your sense be that it has had that uh, um, expected impact of increasing confidence in the report of financial information? I, I, I absolutely think so. You know, I mean, I think the restatements is an indicator of it.
2: There's some debate about little R versus big R right now and what that actually means. We won't go into that, but... The I, I think the the answer is yes, and that's why we have advocated for it in other jurisdictions, right? Certainly other jurisdictions have added um Sarbanes Oxley like um provisions, but not Europe and not the UK, right, which are two very big markets. Um and so we have um pushed for that. Um, me personally, I find it a, a little frustrating that the UK government believes they've reached a proportionate response on Sarbanes-Oxley because I, I don't really see it proportionate. I think that cost-benefit analysis is heavily focused on the cost of doing 302 and 404 and not the benefits, which are um, much harder to measure um, for investors. Um, and, you know, the cost of capital should rise when there's less confidence related to um, the financial reporting, right? So we've advocated because we we believe it's so so obvious that it has improved it and improved investor confidence and responsibility and
1: accountability. So one more question before we get to the ESG topic. And this is on compliance costs, because this is one thing that still stands out for me when the law was passed, which sort of an uproar from preparers on the cost that it was going to to take to um, comply, particularly with the 404 provisions, and even for companies that don't need the external auditor certification for their own you know, control, putting them in place. And just curious if you, either one of you reflect back and think about the sort of long-term benefits. If we would say it's sort of tipped in the, the benefit direction, I, I, I think that would be our view. But just curious perspective. And start with you, Wes. Oh, Can I jump ahead. in that one first? Please do. Just yes. because
2: I have a raging yes. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> um, and, and um, you know, it, it, it's a raging yes. And part of my um, dislike of the conversation in the UK that their response is proportionate, right? And I love the UK. I lived there for um, two years. Um, but I I really feel it's so obvious that it has worked, right? So there was that discussion, um, when Sarbanes-Oxley uh, was, was created. I was a new audit partner at the time. I helped when we did it at, Started with KPMG, then I was controller of MetLife. We had to implement it, so I went through all phases of it. Yes, and then I went through the risk assessment. We were, we were, was it AS five? I think it was AS five, the one that was risk based. Did I get the letters right? (laughs) Anyway, um, and and we actually filled out some surveys about what it actually cost us, right? And so I I know it from those three perspectives and. Um and well now from an investor perspective, so I can say absolutely the problem is is the benefit is not measured, right? Is considered intangible. Right. And the and the investors pay it and they're willing to pay it. We hear they're willing to pay it. CII um is a council of institutional investors and CFA Institute in the fall of 2019, after Bryden sent a separate letter to the Bayes, the UK government saying, we are willing to pay for this. This is important, we we believe in it. So anyway. A passionate response. Because, Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> because I appreciate Because we that. do think it's so. It's, it's it's the cost benefit is not where we want it to be.
0: I join your passion, Sandy. It, this this is one where uh, the 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 cost side of the equation and the benefit side of the equation are, oftentimes is impacted by uh, the availability. Uh, there's an availability bias. You, you can see direct costs, cash costs, opportunity costs at, at a company by company level. The benefits are no less significant, but they're harder to observe. They're harder to observe because information becomes a public good. But the question for all of us to ask, and I think policymakers in the US over time have 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 asked and wrestled with this question, the benefits, whenever they're they're part of the public good, like what is the cost of the market losing confidence in the reliability of information? Well, then you have a sarban then then you have an Enron type event where the market declines for many investors who don't have the capacity or the the availability of information to conduct their own assessment. The benefits are enormous in relation to the cost. Having said that, I think it has been useful for the SEC over time. In 2007, they, they issued incremental guidance, which had the effect of reducing the cost for companies. The psob as, as you said, Sandy, issued audit standard five, which had the effect of reducing the compliance cost for uh, for auditors. Over time, uh, the the cost of compliance has been reduced and the benefits, if anything, have expanded. One additional benefit that I think is worth noting, and that is on the control side in particular, it has enabled companies to be much more resilient in their financial reporting process for them to know end-to-end what are all of the key controls, what are the processes that are significant to producing our financial results. That also has internal benefit of the availability of information that the board might receive in conducting their oversight or the management might use in making decisions about the allocation of capital within companies. So the benefit side, I I think, is oftentimes minimized, but is very significant in in the overall conclusion. It's, um, you know, one one of the things I'd like to say is you can't hedge away the risk of bad data. There's no market instrument that lets you hedge away the risk of that data. You just lack the opportunity to participate in the market if you have that data. That gets to the benefit side.
2: You know, one one thing I will say there is, um, back to your opening comment with respect to um, Skilling's comment in front of the Senate, right? Um, Not having management be able to say that is a benefit, right? How do you measure that, right? That's really... To me, a poignant example of the intangible, um, benefit that doesn't really get measured. But the cost of dollars of hiring people and auditors and the like, they certainly get, they get tabulated, so.
1: All right, well, now I want to shift our attention a little bit to the current and really thinking about the next evolution of reporting and how controls and Sarbanes-Oxley, the ecosystem fit into that. And, you know, Wes, we've spent a lot of time talking about the importance of integrating financial and non-financial data, specifically talking about ESG and going to your comment about bad data, you equally have that risk with ESG, and we did see an investment. Investor surveys we did last fall that the, the vast majority of investors are looking for assurance on their ESG data at the same level as the financial statements. So, so lots there, but at the same time, you also see you know the proposed SEC rules, proposed rules from the ISSB, proposed rules as Sandy mentioned from the EU, the um, CSRD, and. It's a lot for companies. And I think the combination of thinking of compliance, with all these new rules, thinking about being audited, thinking about internal controls, just all these moving parts. Taking a step back and thinking, at the end of the day, if, we're reporting, if companies are reporting this information, you want investors to be able to rely on the information. What pieces of the ecosystem do you think we need to put in place to make sure that that, that works together? And Wes, I'll start with you.
0: I would say companies need a, a solid system for the reporting that they do. Uh, the reported outcomes need to be investor-grade. It needs to it needs to earn a level of confidence in its reliability so that investors have confidence as they incorporate it into their decision-making models. So what, what does that take? What do we know from financial reporting that ports over to non-financial information? Number one, governance which requires expertise to understand what the information is and a degree of independence so that there's a healthy degree of challenge, so governance. Internal controls and processes at a system level. Is the data complete? Is it accurate? Is it representationally faithful? Those are just attributes as an example of the kinds of internal controls and processes that help shore up reliability. And then last, transparency. Is the information that's reported transparent and useful is there a good dis- description of the methodologies, the assumptions, the measurement techniques so that users of the information understand what they're getting and how they can use it and how potentially uh, they should not use it so that they would not reach an appropriate conclusion so those those are solid systems that we understand from financial reporting, which has become the gold standard of reliability in corporate communications. The financial statements, and that can be applied elsewhere in the context of the information that that companies are reporting. Companies are reporting on things like climate risk or human capital or or others where there might not be direct measurement and recognition in the financial statements, although Each of those can produce risks that have financial effects. You can attribute the risk to a financial effect. And and so uh, helping investors and helping users of the information make the connection between uh, the non-financial information, the pre-financial information, however you want to describe that, and financial effects is also an important element to it.
1: So, Sandy, if I look to you then, and specifically let's focus on the SEC ESG proposal, there's three parts, right? You have the risks that are in the four part of the document. You have your greenhouse gas emissions, where there's a proposal for the large filers, um, so accelerated and large accelerated, just to make sure I get my terms right, uh, filers uh, to get assurance over them. And then you have the portion in the footnotes that would be subject to the audit into management's internal control of financial reporting. There are some strong views from people that it does not belong in the footnotes. And I was in fact on a call this morning where someone vehemently was giving that view that this information doesn't belong there. So is is you or it's the CFA however you want to frame it have looked and thought about this how do you think about those different parts and how it all sort of fits in when we think about even you know sarbanes oxley well
2: it, it's interesting that you asked the question about the SEC and that and that comment letter so I can't go through all of what what we say because yeah. our, our comment letter a hundred and twelve <laughs> pages long um, so and and what we have various um, nuggets I say the the comment letter is a meal. The executive summary of, or the table that shows our positions is like lunch. <laughs> the executive summary in the letter is a snack. And then um, I have a little tidbit, which is a blog. It's two pages, talking points, right? So you can enter this conversation with CFA Institute in any way that you like. But I would say, um, broadly speaking, that... You know, it's 1933, 1934 mm-hmm. in the context of ESG disclosures, right? And the SEC, if you look at CFA Institute's history, I say this many times, our history is in the Securities Acts and the proliferation of information for investment decision-making. I think accountants and analysts have way more in common today than they did then, because technology, in my perception, mm-hmm. is making um, auditors analysts or accountants analysts, um but with that said, you know, our position has been um, we believe we as have a fiduciary duty to our clients. We manage other people's money. Some people want to um invest based on value, and some people want to invest based on values. But we need to start with value, right? And then build on to um values because we need to be directly focused on, for example, on the SEC our opening comment in our comment letter is this, the SEC does have the authority, this is value relevant to investors, um, and here's what we need, right? We want to make it absolutely clear this is how we are answering this letter. Um, you know, I think when I responded to that letter and then I responded to the ISSB, and we just wrote a very cursory um, letter to the European um, to FRAG for the European Commission, because there's just so much to do over oh, yeah. such a short period of time, right? Um, I think the benefit of what the SEC has done is that the SEC has brought everybody up the learning curve, mm-hmm. right? Everybody, um, knows more about it than they did before. Not a hundred percent, right? I think that, it, um, there's, this is going to be an iterative process. It's not going to happen all at once. I think that certainly the disclosures, to get you back to your original uh, point, sorry for all the background. No, it's helpful. Very helpful. But the the disclosures outside of the financial statements other than greenhouse gas emissions are very important. We're worried that they're going to be a little too qualitative other than sort of the physical risks and some of the transition risk disclosures. Those may actually be a little bit better than what we see from um, the ISSB's disclosures. The greenhouse gas emissions, we think they're very important. Um, we haven't specifically asked about attestation on scope one and scope two. We've asked your, your response in your mm-hmm. comment letter is similar to our response or your survey is that yeah. auditors want verification, assurance, whatever you want to call it on, on some of that information. Um, scope three, we have supported scope three, um, saying relevance is more important than reliability as it comes to that. So we think we've got to start somewhere knowing there are tons of challenges associated that we've supported disclosure of a range, which gets back to some of what Wes was talking about, like making sure people understand the certainty of the information Mm -hmm. they're getting, et cetera, et cetera. And then when it comes to the financial statements, I think, um, Anchoring to the financial statements is um, epically, if I can use that sort of hip term, epically important because um, it needs, the financial statements are anchoring, they have confirmatory power, they're the truth teller, right? But there's a lot of challenges in that. Some of those terms that are in the fore part mm-hmm. do not exist in US GAAP. How do you identify, capture, record, and report those items. But we say rather than 1% of the financial statement captions, hey, let's get the cash flows and let's get the um, how the estimates move so we can adapt our models and use those cash flows as confirmatory power to the information that's disclosed in the four part. Um, we say to the ISSB as an example, You know, they're allowing, if you want to, those um, financial effects can be discussed qualitatively. We're not keen on that. We think it needs to be um, quantitative. Mm -hmm. So um, if you look at that climate proposal, it is the essence of SX, SK, And how do we value this? You'll see we actually put a picture in there and how do we bridge these disclosures? We were actually for some industry metrics. Not everybody's for that. Um, because we believe they're forward looking and can be helpful. Um, so that's my, that's a hundred and twelve comment letter, page comment letter in like,
1: Three minutes. Sorry. Excellent summary there, <laughs> um, and I think uh, we can probably weigh in to say that, uh, as you said, a lot of that is echoed in PwC's letter. We have to make a lot of the same points. Wes, did you want to weigh in on that?
0: Just chiming in, and ours was thirty plus pages, Sandy. So uh, you you've um, you've outdone us um, by I'm a fine. factor. Maybe. Um, Maybe
2: not mine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but. um, Uh, The the three big concepts that we built into our letter, and again, we were supportive of additional disclosure that's investor grade, three big concepts. Number one, it should have quality. It should be reliable. And there should be confidence in the quality of it, because we think that's an essential element to investor usefulness, decision usefulness. The second is, uh, to to your point, uh, it should be integrated into the business model. It should speak to the business model. It it should be predictive of financial uh, effects and cash flows, whether that be operating expenses, CapEx, uh, the ability to to raise capital, compensation contracts, supply contracts, etc. It should be rooted in the business model. And then thirdly, the information will develop over time. And so we believe that a transition approach is essential so that large companies go first and establish practices that that other companies following along uh, could apply. We advocated, for example, for a climate disclosure task force that really brings together investors, preparers, auditors uh, under the leadership of the SEC staff uh, to really promote a conversation about to kind of get the the details right in, in a way that is understandable and can be and, and can elevate confidence in the information so those were those were the three points that I think travel uh, very much alongside the the points that that you are making as well sandy.
2: I think your comment about transition, we've actually supported that. We never support, we never support that. We say every, if it's, if it's good information, it should be done by everybody because my capital should um, um, be put to use, whether in a small entity or a big entity, I've got to adjust the risk um, for investing in, in the company based on the availability or non-availability of information. So we've, Surprisingly, supported that transition. We've also, or that transition approach, we've also supported that you don't have to go back. Which is, um, Wes will know that we never support that. <laughs> we always want retrospective information, but we say, look, we need to march forward. Much of that risk is in the future. Let's let's spend our resources forward rather than um, than backward. And and my advisory committee, the CDPC, surprisingly who always wants that, agreed with me. So yay (laughs) 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 on
1: that. Uh, Well, so obviously, I think this ESG conversation is one we could probably continue for for the whole afternoon, um, which I I won't do that, although I do feel like I should get the two of you back together to talk about that more. But if I just take a step back and say, okay, in the context of our conversation about Sarbanes-Oxley reflecting on 20 years, now we look ahead for the next 20 years, you think about ESG reporting, you think of climate, human capital, all this, these other forms of reporting we may see, and we think about how Sarbanes-Oxley may adjust, fit, and where do we see it in 20 years. Just going to be a very open-ended question. What do you think as we think about Sarbanes over the next 20 years? Are we in... Uh, what year is that? 2042. I should be able to do my math better. Um, are we still talking about Sarbanes? Are we on to the next big thing or or what do you think? Well, in 2042, I won't be talking about (laughs) Sarbanes actually. I'm pretty sure that I'll be
2: doing something a little more, um, fun involving sun. Um, but, uh, I, I, think that certainly the, um, that, the internal controls and all of the elements and all of the foundational elements associated with responsibility, accountability, internal controls, you know, it's information. We. I, I'm moving to the space of this is just a different type of information and I call it pre-financial. I don't really, I'm not a fan of non-financial um, because I'm about enterprise value, right? So I want to know what it links to right. eventually it will hit eventually. Yes. And, it, and, you know, I joke that um, enterprise, it can't be more than six degrees of separation like Kevin Bacon, right? <laughs> that it can't be so the, the link can't be so far off that I can't actually do that. Right. Um, so I think that all of those things apply. I think that all of the principles of Sarbanes-Oxley apply. I think it's a, just a different suite of information. I think that in some ways, though I asked the question of our, our our membership, do you think that some of this ESG disclosure is an, an, uh, that something's missing in financial reporting? A lot of people said yes, a lot of people said no. there wasn't any um, any, you know, certain, absolute certain there. But I think that it's just another risk investors need to price. Wes, how about what's your view?
0: I think Sandy's uh, description, it really resonates with me. Maybe an additional angle on this, for as much work and impact as sarbanes actually has had on the quality and the reliability of information, I think over the next 20 years, we need an equivalent amount of focus on the relevance of information. That's a point Sandy made. But then also the way information is consumed in a digital way as data by data elements of the financial statements, are they serving the sensible needs of those who consume it? So the delivery and consumption side of our financial reporting system, I think, could, um, could come into focus and we'd all benefit. We'd all benefit by by really studying how information is first prepared, then evaluated, audited, and ultimately consumed. And I, I hope the next twenty years we focus on the consumption of the information. I
2: I just have to I can't let that go. I know we're short on time here, but I are, I'm in raging agreement with that statement. We said it in 2013. It is about relevance. It's about how you consume it, how you deliver it. We're not overloaded with information. We have computers not everything is equally important at the same time um, and that re- relevance of the information is important. And we've actually suggested to the FASB in the FAF strategic review that they establish a technology um, working group to evaluate what the base level of technology they're using to assume how they set standards. I think the audit profession has moved the PCAOB into the technology discussion. I don't feel like that... I think that push needs to happen um, to the accounting standards, um, as well, because it is about the technology. We, we can't have self-driving cars before we have, um, better information. In like the income statement, you know, I jokingly say
1: that. I cannot agree more And actually for, <laughs> okay. for the listener's benefit. Um, Wes and I are both smiling. so um, <laughs> It's hard sometimes you can't see the, the body reaction. But yeah. I have to say, um, I think we ended on such a great point because I do think personally relevance is, is we think about the, our role as accountants and auditors or anyone involved in this ecosystem, if we're not relevant. There's not a lot of purpose for us to be here. But I will reflect then and tie this all together that I do think Again, going back to your point that they put this together in six months has really shown its own resilience and relevance in terms of being able to continue to be important um, from an ecosystem point of view. And as we look ahead, it's you know it's hard to see how it wouldn't continue to not even be more important as we think about all these new sources of information. So I think that's an excellent point. Well said. Thank you. So Wes. Sandy, thank you so much. I feel like I definitely want to need the two of you back. I've got so many more questions I wrote down here, (laughs) um, but really appreciate all your insight. And thanks so much for joining me today. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more new episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for the newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights
0: reserved.